There are a number of people on this planet that I like to be around. I'm surrounded by them here in this meeting today. But there are very few people who have walked this planet that I would like to be like. I don't mean physically, of course. We could all identify someone we'd rather look like, but any such longing would stem from sinful discontent, I fear. I speak rather of those few people in life whom we either meet or read about in the pages of history who possess a certain spirit, a noble character, so beautiful and superior to our own, we simply want to be like them. But unless they are long dead and reality has been covered over by the sands of time, even these people have flaws and weaknesses that we want to avoid, don't they? Indeed, for those of us who are born again, for those of us who are rightly related to God, there is only one person whom we can long to be like in spirit without any qualification or reservation, and that person is Jesus of Nazareth. In spirit, in character, in personality, Jesus displayed the glory of his Father. Jesus was full of grace and truth and love and compassion and holiness and righteous zeal. As the exact representation of God, Hebrews 1.3, moral beauty flowed unhindered from Jesus' spirit at all times and in every way. Imagine. Imagine what it must have been like to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. One of my uncles worked for a long period of time at the University of Arkansas, and in his executive position, he crossed paths from time to time with then-Governor Bill Clinton. And he told us that when you were in Clinton's presence, love him or despise him, when you were in his presence, there was an unmistakable energy that filled the room. It was almost as if it preceded him into your presence A similar experience has been reported by many who have been in the presence of great people, of movers and shakers down through the centuries. Depending on the person, the aura that seemed to surround them might be an energetic excitement, such as with Bill Clinton. For others, it was an air of authority. Some spoke of even feeling it without knowing the person had entered the room. Sometimes it was a clammy fear that just overtook one in the presence of such a powerful but evil person. If this is true of fallen sinners, can you imagine what it must have been like to be in the presence of Jesus Christ? Can you imagine the aura that must have been emitted from his being and his spirit? I think that if you loved God, you would sense the spirit of Jesus resonating with truth and wisdom, with humility and compassion. There would be an aura of holy zeal and moral beauty flowing from him in power and glory, and you could not help wanting to be like him. But you know Jesus, if you know him, if you've come to understand him and come to saving faith in him and you've come to read his words in scripture you know he wouldn't let you sit there for very long there were crowds of people 
who were infatuated with Jesus. They wanted to hear him preach. They wanted to be near him. They may have even wanted to be like him, but when Jesus opened up his soul and began to explain who he really was, when he began to lay out the passions and the principles and the priorities that drove him, well, you figured out really soon that to follow this man and to be like him was going to be to walk upstream. In fact, at times to run against the stream of a culture so oriented against his way of thinking in life. And in the end, very few really wanted to take up that challenge. So it comes to us this day, so many years removed and yet so very vital. How about you? Do you really want to be like him? Do you want his spirit to be seen in you? Do you want his aura to emit from your soul? If you do, be warned. Jesus' seminar here in Luke chapter 6 is not for spiritual wimps. It's for people who are willing to say, I so want to be like Jesus that I will lay down here my life and I will follow him. I'll lay down everything that seems to make sense to this world, and I'll leave it behind, and I will follow him. In verses 27 through 36, Jesus lays bare his spirit in an awesome display of raw spirituality, and he lays before us no small challenge to be like him. He starts here at verse 27 with four ethical commands but I tell you who hear me, I think Jesus is saying there, you who are really listening. All kinds of people love to hear his sermons and they love to be around him. But I think he's saying here to those of you who are really on the page, those of you who do really want to be like me, who do want to be my followers, to you who are really listening, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Love your enemies. The word for love here, of course, is the Greek agape. This is not a love of warm familial regard nor is it a friendship kind of love. This is agape love. This is a love initiated by a moral decision to give to a person what is in their best interest and to treat that person rightly no matter how they treat you. In our selfishness, we have enough trouble doing that for people that we like. But Jesus says here, love your enemies. He calls us to treat people like this who hate us. And in case there's any delusion that Jesus is merely calling us to generate this passing sentimental feeling for people, to sort of blanket forgive them or feel good about them, he goes on secondly to say, do good to those who hate you. 
This is not just a fuzzy feeling. This is active. The Spirit of Jesus not only avoids doing evil to those who hate us, it actively performs good deeds in their behalf. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Number three, verse 28, bless those who curse you. This command does not exclude firm words or honest rebuke or challenge. Matthew 23, Paul's many words to the churches were firm. They were rebukes often. But what is in view here is personal offense, and truly one of the hardest acts of love is to repay hateful words with kind and encouraging words. How hard it is to control our tongues in such situations. But the love of Jesus runs this deep, that those who cursed, he blessed. And those who knew Jesus, who got around his spirit and saw it and wanted to be like him, got the point, didn't they? Romans chapter 12 and verse 14, Paul says, Bless those who curse you, bless and curse not. To the Corinthians he wrote in chapter 4, When you are cursed, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Peter caught this same idea when he called his readers to not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because for this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. They curse, you bless. They slander, you speak kindly. Number four, pray for those who mistreat you. What is our natural response to someone who mistreats us? Jesus' characteristic response to people who mistreated him was to pray for them. This is certainly cathartic. It has cathartic value, healing value as we pray for our enemy. But there's much more to it than this. More importantly, there is a God in heaven who in fact hears our prayers and can change things. In fact, he can change our own hearts. So let me ask, do you have an enemy? Is there someone who upsets you, who harms you, or who mistreats you? Picture that person right now. Go ahead and do it. There won't be any bubbles that come up over your head that we can all see. Who is it, honestly? Now let me ask you, do you pray for that person? Do you pray positively for that person? If you do not, we have to come to terms with the fact that we are dishonoring the counsel of Jesus. And your spirit is shriveling on account of that person. Jesus says, pray for them. We'd be a fool to do anything else. Do you have an enemy? Do you have someone who hates you? Do you have an antagonist? Do you have someone in your life who makes life miserable? You have a prayer project. You don't have to write their name down on a piece of paper because you won't forget it. Pray for them. Now let's stop and consider these four commands briefly. When I read these, I gulp. This is a hard call. But do you hear such counsel like this? Do you hear this kind of talk 
from the talk show gurus or the self-help books or the secular media or from your unsaved friends. We don't hear any of this kind of counsel anywhere in this world. This is not how our world thinks. If you are going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to think differently. Do you know someone who speaks this kind of counsel into your life? If so, that is a rare friend and someone that you should heed. Let me say on the other side of it, if you take counsel from someone who fuels your bitterness toward those who mistreat you, and encourages you to get even with those who hate you. If you take counsel with someone who encourages your tendency to gossip and to slander, that is no friend. And when you speak to someone about an enemy in their life, do you simply share their pain? Or do you take up the counsel of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, and say in gentle and appropriate words, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Pray for them. Do we lovingly speak such wisdom into the lives of others? In verses 27 and 28, we find reflected the Spirit of Jesus, a Spirit that displayed itself under the most intense fires of trial. And oh, how this teaching would be put to the test. Jesus stands before these multitudes and says, Love your enemies. It wasn't just words. You remember... Remember that night. He took into his own hands the feet of the man who he knew was scheming to betray him to death. And he washed that man's feet. That very evening, Jesus took a morsel of food and dipped it in the sop and handed it to that very man. A cultural sign of unique friendship. And he handed it to him. And later, Jesus would take Scripture and warn Judas of the path that was before him as a last-ditch effort to dissuade him from his evil plot. He did good. To his enemy. And all of this doesn't even begin to compare to how he treated those who crucified him. Saying as his life blood flowed away, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Forgive them. Few people on earth have ever had more bitter, hostile enemies than did Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, no one did, because those enemies were fueled by Satan himself. But he loved them, and he did good to them, not evil. Well, Jesus follows those four strong commands with four practical illustrations, beginning at verse 29. 
The first illustration, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. The idea here, I think, is probably that of a backhanded slap of contempt. To hit, to strike someone on the face with the back of the hand was the ultimate sign of contempt. And Jesus is preparing his hearers for such treatment. You'll be slapped in the face. You'll be treated with contempt. When they backhand you across the face, turn the other cheek. Open yourself up to further abuse. Turn the other cheek. Secondly, lose your coat. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. If someone takes your outer garment, do not stop him from trying to take the undergarment and the robes that they would wear. Thirdly, give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Two commands, perhaps, there, give to all, do not demand back. This is a tough phrase to interpret. The context of Jesus' words are probably here persecution. As we look back to chapter 22 and 23, Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. This is the context in which these commands are given. I think this is the prevailing idea that they are here being persecuted. And how are they to respond when someone in persecution takes your coat or they slap you in insult? Don't stop them, but submit to the mistreatment. Now, of course, if we applied these words with rigid literalness to all of life, we'd all soon be homeless and naked because there are selfish people out there who would find out that we'd give them anything that they ask for and take it. The context, again, is primarily persecution, but it is the attitude that we need to draw out here. It is the Spirit of Jesus that is at issue. Now, let's balance it. Let me say just one more word on that. Let's balance it with what the Bible teaches in whole. Jesus is obviously arresting our attention. There's sort of a shock value here. Somebody comes to take your coat and you let them have the next robe too? He's seeking to get our attention here. Let's remember, this does not conflict with the Bible's teaching about human government. Wrongdoers are to be prosecuted. People who steal things from you are to be prosecuted. The Bible tells us that we're not even to give food to those who refuse to work. Jesus is not conflicting with all of these ideas of Scripture. And let's remind ourselves also that the rest of Scripture nowhere says anything in the New Testament about giving away everything to anyone who asks you. The point here is how do I respond to persecution? The point here is how do I respond to someone who is mistreating me personally? And I think the overarching idea here on Jesus' teaching is the loving heart is vulnerable. The loving heart takes risks. It gives of itself asking nothing in return. It endures pain and misuse humbly and meekly. It does not insist on its rights or on getting its way, but does good to one's enemies. It takes a big person to act that way. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, if you want my spirit, then act this way. 
I read in preparation for this sermon one of the such a fitting illustration that I just draw it from our Kent Hughes and read it to you straight out of the book. I think there was an individual who epitomized the spirit of what Jesus is saying here in recent days, and I quote, After the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989, no person in all of East Germany was more despised than the former communist dictator, Erich Honecker. He had been stripped of all his offices. Even the Communist Party rejected him. Kicked out of his villa, the new government refused him and his, and his wife new housing. The Honeckers were homeless and destitute. We need to read into that scene all of the evil and wickedness that this man was a part of and his wife in a communist state. They were getting what they deserved. Make no mistake. But enter at this point Pastor Homer, director of a Christian help center north of Berlin. Made aware of the Honecker Straits, Pastor Homer felt it would be wrong to give them a room meant for even needier people. And so the pastor and his family decided to take the former dictator into their own home. Eric Honecker's wife, Margot, had ruled the East German education system for 26 years. Eight of Pastor Homer's ten children had been turned down for higher education due to Mrs. Honecker's policies, which discriminated against Christians. Now the Homers were caring, were caring for the personal needs of their enemy, the most hated man in Germany. This was so unnatural, so unconventional, so supernaturally sublime, so Christ-like. By the grace of God, the Homers loved their enemies, did them good, blessed them, and prayed for them. They turned the other cheek. They gave their enemies their coat, in this case, their own home. They did to the Honickers what they would have wished the Honickers would do to them. And so by way of summary principle, Jesus said in verse 31, here's the point, do to others as you would have them do to you. Again, the emphasis does not fall on merely avoiding wrongdoing, nor is the point to do whatever others want us to do. The idea is to act with sensitivity to the preferences of others as you would want them to act with sensitivity to yours. We are to habitually put others ahead of ourselves to act toward them selflessly and lovingly. How do you want others to treat you? We could go on and on with this, but let me say just briefly. You want others to consistently give you the benefit of the doubt, to assume the best about you. Give them the benefit of the doubt and assume the best about them. You don't want others to judge you. Don't judge them. You want others to trust you. Trust them. Is that what's going on in our homes? 
It's that, is that what's going on in our private conversations as we discuss other people and even our enemies? Are we giving them the benefit of the doubt? Are we refusing to judge? Are we assuming the best as far as possible? What do we want? We want others to rejoice with us when we rejoice and to weep with us when we weep. Do the same for them. You want others to receive you, to greet you, to recognize you. Do the same for them. Do to others what you'd want them to do for you. Now we see all of what Jesus is saying here within proper balance. It's not simply doing whatever anyone wants me to do. To do that would be to harm many people. But it's having this spirit of sensitivity and perception to what is right and good toward my enemy in doing it. I think it's illustrated for us in the experience of one of the generals of the Southern Army in the Civil War. Let me paint this picture for you briefly. The northern general, Ulysses S. Grant, was taking his troops through Tennessee, moving south to invade Mississippi. When they engaged the southern army under the command of General Albert Sidney Johnston at the Battle of Shiloh, during a particularly intense spot in the battle referred to as the Hornet's Nest, Johnston was shot behind the knee, severing his femoral artery, his boot filled with blood immediately. He was brought down from his horse and it looked to be a fatal shot. It turned out that his life could have been very easily saved with a simple tourniquet that any surgeon or doctor serving on either side of the war would have been able to apply quite easily. But Johnston's surgeon was not there. He was not there because a short time earlier, Johnson had sent his surgeon, this southern general, to treat northern soldiers. He did not do unto others by stopping the fight. He did not do unto others to play with the outcome of providence. He sent his surgeon to treat the enemy while he sought to kill others. Now that might seem odd, but I don't think it's odd to those who understand the providence of God and understand the principle that Jesus lays out here. Saying nothing about the cause and the fight and what one should or should not have been doing. Simply put, this was going about life as we have to go about it in a fallen world while taking those opportunities that are afforded to treat others with dignity and grace and love. This is, to paint a different picture, theologians, whether they sit here in our midst, for we're all theologians, or they are in some great seminary somewhere debating a theological point. The debate goes on. Should we say, well, I'm supposed to do unto others? What I'd like for this other debater to do is to lay down and give me the victory. No, that's playing with providence. That's playing God. We debate, we discuss, we disagree, but we do so with grace and with dignity and love. Just like we want them to treat us, we treat them.
That's the point. Well, at this point in the lecture, Jesus exhorts his hearers to pursue love for their enemies by taking up three lines of very pointed application. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. You know, Saddam Hussein loves people. If they love him, he loves them to some degree in some twisted way. You know Jesus' point. What good is that to love people who love you? There's no virtue in loving those who love you. Sinners can do that. Any sinner can find in his or her heart the ability to respond properly to those who treat them well. Verse 33, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. These ideas, these points of application, of course, are drawing back to his, pre, uh, to his preliminary imperatives there in verses 27 and 28. Notice verse 32. If you love those who love you, that goes back to verse 27. Love your enemies. Verse 33. If you do good to those who do good to you, that goes back to verse 27b. Do good to those who hate you. And the point, of course, is the same. Even sinners can do good to those who do good to them. Verse 34, the third point of application. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. Going back to verse 30 and indicating that where verse 30 says, those who take from you, let them have it, would be an indication of borrowing here and lending. Now, it's difficult to know exactly what is meant here for the phrase repayment there in verse 34. Do not expect repayment. And then you see later in verse 34, expecting to be repaid in full. The Greek simply simply reads to receive back. So to be repaid in full is to receive back the equal things. That's the actual wording in the Greek. The NIV takes this to mean that you should not expect to receive your money back or your loan back. The idea may be, however, it's simply a receiving back of benefit. In other words, I will give you a loan so that you'll give me a loan in due time. But whatever the case, the spirit is clear. The concern and the need of others should take priority over keeping our money. If you have the Spirit of Jesus, you will know the joy of giving money to other people with no strings attached and with no thought of having lost anything or gained anything before God. You will not curse your enemy who misuses you. You will lay down your life in sacrifice. You will not keep in order that he cannot get, but you will give freely. And doing this, you will have gained much. Verse 35. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. Your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Let's concentrate on that result. Your reward will be great. The point is not that you will earn the favor of God by loving your enemies, doing good to them, but that is the result. We do good to enjoy God's pleasure toward us. The faithful heart knows that God is there and acts like it. It trusts that He will see our loving acts and vindicate us in His time. 
and we will become sons of the Most High God. Again, that doesn't mean we earn our salvation from God, but it's a a Hebraic idiom. It means that you'll be like your Father in heaven. You see the point there at the end of verse 35. Because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. What's the point? You treat the ungrateful and wicked with kindness and compassion. You're being like your Father who treats the ungrateful and the wicked with kindness and compassion. We don't think of this very often, but you know, if God removed His common grace from this planet for one minute, the world would self-destruct. There's only one reason that He causes the sun to shine and the rain to come on all people, and that is because He is a God of mercy. If His mercy were removed, we'd all be destroyed. God grants wicked sinners the capacity to live as decent citizens and caring parents and responsible children. What is maddening is when those people then claim, I show that I am right before God because of how good I am, when in fact that is nothing more than the common grace of God to keep them from killing other people. And people who curse his name and live in godless ways that despise the moral character of God, those same people God visits with his kindness and his goodness every single day. That's how your God acts. If you act the same way, you're a son of the Most High. You're like him. And so he concludes in verse 6, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. This is the God we serve. You serve the God of the pagans, you will run after all debauchery because that is the pagan gods. You serve the God of Scripture, you're going to be merciful because He is merciful. So we take a deep breath as we've considered these hard words from Christ. If you want to have the Spirit of Jesus, you have to renounce the world's way of thinking about suffering. You've got to think differently about suffering. The Spirit of Jesus is one that is big with mercy toward enemies. The heart of Jesus does not keep score or labor to even the score. It does not love with strings attached. It is repulsed by self-centeredness and has big eyes toward the good of others. The Spirit of Jesus prays for the most unlovely people. It compassionately invests time to take up their case before the Father. And in our spirit, we cry out, why treat an enemy like that? This is madness, Jesus. It's too much to ask. Jesus holds out his arms, and he rotates them, and he shows us nail-pierced wrists. Why treat your enemies like that? Because that's how I treated you. 
As Paul put it in chapter 5 of Romans, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I have failed this morning as a speaker if you don't have some sense of how, how very far short you fall, as I have a sense of how very far short I fall of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those. Speak words of goodness to those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. I fall so short of the Spirit of Jesus, but I want to be like Him. I want to be like that. I want to love my enemies, to do good to those who harm me. I have a long ways to go. But I trust that you will continue to walk with me and to pray for me as I pray for you. Let's pray that the Spirit of Jesus would be formed in us as his children. And let's talk to him now in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus and how we long to be with him, to be around him and to be challenged by his spirit, his intense love for all people. Even for his enemies. And we thank you together in this time of prayer for that love which has reached toward us. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. Your word has taught us this and made it so very plain and clear to our minds. We give you thanks and we give you praise, dear Father, for this love toward us. But we know we can't leave it here. We can't just be enamored and awed and rejoicing in your love for us and the love of Jesus for his enemies, we must go beyond and begin to follow and do what you have called us to do, to love our enemies. I pray, God, that you will work in our hearts and teach us, Lord, that when we are mistreated, the answer is not to get even, the answer is to lay down our lives and to love and to serve and to give, to make a decision of the will, to give the very best to those who give the very worst to us. God, give us this spirit as a church. May we treat one another in this way, and may we treat even our enemies in this way. We need you. We ask for your help and your strength. 
Perhaps there are those among us who have not come to saving faith in Jesus. They remain enemies of His. And I pray, God, with all of my heart that You'll draw them to Yourself, to saving faith, to see the wonder of Your love for them. To not look at Your common grace in their life and to say they are thereby justified before You, but to realize that what is good in their life is there simply because You have placed it there and to come to terms with the rebellion of their heart against you. To submit their sins and their past and their future to you and to begin to follow. I pray to this end that you will bring saving faith and enlighten the eyes of the blind as only you can. We plead that you will work and that you will move through the exhortations that we will never forget that you are the one who chooses and loves and enlightens. Please bring people to saving faith, we pray. And may we spread this faith to our enemies in this world. This passage assumes that we're going to run into trouble. And I pray that you will help us not to live lives where all we do is avoid a hateful world but may we open our arms in love and make ourselves vulnerable to people who will mistreat and harm and misuse us. And may we win this world with love as Jesus did. Help us to this end, I pray. In his name, amen.